produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So we're doing something kind of special here. It's August. <laughs> yes. And, you know, sometimes we need a break. Every once in a while, the sugars need to go, you know, to the lake, right? Yeah, yes, we do. And so we're we're not just doing rebroadcasts this month. We're going to take the whole month of August off. And each of the episodes we air are going to have been, to some extent, broadcast before. You're going to recognize these letters. Yep. But we're doing updates to all of them. Mm-hmm. So there are you know, many, many episodes. People say, well, what happened to that person? What did they decide to do? Or you know, did things get better or worse? And we also have those questions. So we picked four episodes yep. that felt like cliffhangers to us. What's going to happen next? And also we listened to our listener responses. Yeah. There were some episodes that we got lots and lots of emails about. And so that's what we're going to do over the course of the next four weeks, starting today. That's right. We are most interested in people who are in transition, in crisis, in some kind of struggle that feels usually the instigating factor with these letter writers. Something's going on with them that they need help resolving. And not only is there that question, what happens next, Mm -hmm. is also, you know, we get these emails from people who have been in that similar situation. And so there's this kind of secret conversation happening in the Dear Sugar Radio inbox where we get these great stories from listeners. And often really great advice. So wh- the way it's going to work is you're going to hear moment in a moment that episode we aired before and then stick around afterwards. Steve and I are going to come back and we're going to share with you some of the emails we got and in some cases actually get follow ups from the people involved in the letter that we're running again. And no letter and response was more asked about than the letter from Two Truths and Many Lies, which listeners might recall as a woman who, to say that her life was in crisis is a big understatement. Let's listen. Dear Sugars, about six months ago, I married the man I've been in love with for more than seven years. I was so excited about our life together. Sometimes I had to pinch myself just to remind myself that my life was real. My partner was my teammate. He was open, honest, caring, affectionate, passionate, smart. I had a feeling of safety with him that I never felt with anyone else and a deep connection despite our very different backgrounds. My husband grew up in Central America with an abusive, alcoholic, biological father who died when he was young, an often absent teenage mother who was constantly working to provide for her children, and later, an American stepfather who was in the Air Force. He married my husband's mother and brought her and her children to the United States when my husband was 13. Once in the United States, my husband's family moved often because of his stepfather's job, while my husband struggled to acclimate himself with the culture and the language. In contrast, I grew up in a four-person, stable, middle-class family in Pennsylvania. 
My parents had been together since high school. I never moved while growing up until I left Pennsylvania to go to college. I have many lifelong friends that I've known since early childhood. My husband and I met each other right after completing college and somehow, despite our strikingly different pasts, connected instantly and grew to realize that we viewed the world in very similar ways. My husband spoke openly and candidly with me about many of his childhood experiences and what I thought was a bond that could overcome pretty much anything, defy all odds. Recently, something changed, and sugars, I was completely unprepared for it. About a month ago, over the course of one week, I found out terrible secrets about my husband that were, to me and to everyone that knows us, completely unfathomable. I learned these things over my husband's shoulder while he searched for nearby restaurants on the computer one night, and then later, through further searches I did on my own, I learned that my husband, one, had a deactivated profile on a dating website throughout our relationship that he reactivated on and off to browse and message people, two, that he was posting personal ads looking for people to, quote, get drinks with on Craigslist while traveling for his job, and three, the real kicker, over the past two years while we got engaged, planned a wedding, and got married, he had hired prostitutes, also while traveling for work, and left nasty, degrading reviews about them online. But what followed was the worst part. It was a series of lies, lie after lie after lie after lie. Every time I found something new, my husband would only admit to that piece of information. Even still, today, after he's told me time and again that this is the whole truth, I can't be sure it's all of it because of all the lies. How do I tell you the rest of the story? The rest of the story is this pit that sits in my stomach every day while I try to get dressed for work or smile or interact with people. It is the knowledge that you believe you know someone, and then, somehow, Suddenly, you don't. After only six months of marriage, I'm contemplating filing for divorce, but I am also in the process of trying somehow to understand. My husband claims that he never met anyone from the dating website or Craigslist and that he only sent occasional non-continuous messages. He admits to paying for sexual acts four times and says that someone he works with showed him how to do it. He makes his actions seem like part of a fantasy world, something that was mostly lived out online, and says that he pretended he was someone else while doing them. But at some point, Sugars, real people became part of this world, and it was no longer a fantasy. My husband says that he has demons from his childhood and that he's bad at being alone that he was drinking while he was lonely on the road and stressed out from his job, that he's curious about the darker things in life, and that one thing led to another, and ultimately, he didn't know how to deal with his loneliness and stress, and he wanted a distraction from himself, so this was his outlet. My husband wants to stay married and get better. He is seeing a therapist, and I've gone with him three times. Lately, he's turned back to healthier distractions in his life, running, doing yoga daily, and reading regularly. He is seeking out ways to travel less for work. But how do you recover from something like this? I'm questioning our entire relationship. I feel like our marriage was a fraud and that I was missing a key piece of the puzzle when I entered into it. When I talk to my husband, he seems to understand and regret what he did, but he also seems to disassociate from the behavior, acting like it could go away, like he could fix it, mend it, make it all better. I also worry about my own baggage. 
I have trust issues from previous relationships that I've struggled with. But those issues were something we worked through together, and over time I learned to trust my husband. Now, after this traumatic betrayal, I fear that it will take me years, even decades, to ever achieve that level of trust with him again. I am about to be 30 years old. I can't help but think that I can get out of this and have a fresh start, but I'm still struggling with the reality of it all. Sugars, how do I proceed? Signed, Two Truths and Many Lies. Oh, dear. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your situation, Two Truths and Many Lies. This is a very, very painful situation. And uh, there are so many parts of it that we need to dig into. But the first thing I want to say is how much strength and wisdom and calm I see in your letter in the midst of this terrible storm of lies, as you say, and confusion. And, you know, you don't know which way you should go when you think about going forward. But I think you're asking all the right questions. Yeah. And the first thing I want to say to you about this question at the heart of your letter, this question of why, why and how, how can it be that somebody I know so well has this other face, has this other life that I don't know about, mm. and why won't he be honest with me about it? And what I can tell you about the why is because he's ashamed, Yeah. really ashamed, and That's why you haven't seen his whole self, and now you have. And I understand your confusion about those two selves coming together, but in order for you to succeed in your marriage, in order for your husband to heal, he's going to have to bring those two selves together, and you're going to have to learn how to love those two selves. Mm -hmm. And so that healing journey, if you decide to go on it together or if he decides to go on it as an individual, is about learning how to love the darkness that is this man you married. And in that darkness, there is the capacity for profound deceit. Mm -hmm. There is the capacity to talk about women in ways that you find shocking and degrading and sick. And as you say, you're going to have to work for a long time to rebuild trust if you decide to do that. Right. When I read this letter, um, I really thought about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. You know, that's this Scottish uh, sort of gothic novel written by Robert Louis Stevenson back in the 1886. And interestingly, around the time that Freud is thinking about and writing about the idea of the subconscious, that there is our conscious experience of ourselves and the person we try to project in the world, and then there's this bubbling cauldron of unconscious forbidden wishes and desires and impulses. And just to recap the plot, most people know, but Dr. Jekyll is this guy who wants to be respected and revered by his community and doesn't want to lose his uh, social position, but he has all these unstated vices that he needs to indulge. And so he conceives of this potion, which he drinks, and that physically transforms him into this effectively a sociopath, Mr. Hyde, who can then indulge in all these sexual and violent fantasies that, in fact, Dr. Jekyll has. Uh, And uh, just a a quote to think about, Uh, with every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth that man is not truly one, but truly two. And, you know, I thought about this also in relation to this paradigm in popular culture. So many of the particularly male protagonists not just in literature, but in our folklore and in our popular culture, adhere to this same paradigm. Who is Don Draper of Mad Men? He's Mm -hmm. a double life. 
he's this libertine, uh, almost sociopathic figure privately, and then he's trying to be a badass executive and good husband and father in his other life. Who is Walter White of Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. He's trying to be a good family man on one side, and he's a sociopath on the outside. Who's Tony Soprano for that matter? He's an anguished suburban parent and family man, and he's a murderous, sadistic mob boss. Spider-Man, Superman, it's in all these paradigms there is this idea of the double life. And those are very exaggerated versions of a paradigm that I think we all live with, the idea that we have, even in our most intimate relationships, a private self that is too shameful to reveal, even to our partners. Right. I agree. I think that we all have that. And yet, I think so often when we address letters on our show, what we're talking about is normal human behavior that has actually reached an extreme. Right. To me, when I read this letter, I'm thinking that it sounds to me like your husband has, you know, a behavioral addiction that's connected to this kind of shame-based sexual life that he's put deeply underground, that he acts out of a compulsion. We're not talking about somebody who, you know, falls into an affair with somebody else because they were in a a situation or has a one-night stand and cheats and regrets it. We're talking about somebody who has repeatedly over a long period of time continued to engage in a behavior that he or she knows is destructive. And in this case, it's about sex. Right. You know, I loved all of those examples that you gave because I think the reason I think those characters you named in those TV shows, the reason that they're so compelling to us is, A, they're like us. We all, almost all of us, see a sort of split identity. And they're also not like us. They've gone to the extreme. Right. And two truths and many lies your husband has gone to that extreme, and that's why you're so shocked. Right. I see it in a sense that the, the sexual stuff is symptomatic. The real problem is that he's a compulsive liar. Yeah. And the first big lie is to himself. This guy, you know, you know him as this put-together guy who's compassionate and thoughtful, and that's who he's made himself into. But underneath that are a whole bunch of traumatic, complicated experiences that he hasn't resolved and worked through. Mm -hmm. And he may not even understand himself why he's compelled to these things. He says, I just experienced it as loneliness, but hasn't necessarily realized perhaps it's because my mother was completely absent Mm -hmm. and my father was dead. I need to feel connected and affirmed uh, or I need to degrade women. There's some darkness within him that's rooted deep in the past that actually is angry and needs to express anger and degradation that he feels within himself and put it on women. Mm -hmm. That stuff is real. You provide for him a safe space for him where he can be his best self. But when he goes off on the road, those ghosts reappear. The real question is whether he's going to get to the truth of it. And when you pick up on the fact that he's disassociating and that he's lying and lying and lying or telling you just as much as can be proven in a court of law, right, that's a bad sign. It's a really bad sign because what it tells us is he's not yet ready to actually tell you the truth. To bear all. He's not willing and able to do that because he's terrified he's going to lose you if he does. But that's what shame is. I mean, he's so ashamed to tell her because he thinks you can't possibly love me if I tell you the truth. So I'll just admit, just barely admit to what you can absolutely prove. And I'll hide the rest and I'll make the rest go away. If I don't say it's true, it won't be true. And so, I mean, I think that one of the signs that he's changed is that you won't have that feeling anymore, that he only tells you what you can prove in the court of law, right? We have this idea that confession is this sort of discreet experience 
But that's not how it is at all. In this case, like grieving, it's really incremental. Mm -hmm. I think his allowing you to look over his shoulder at his computer and see, that's a kind of unconscious confession. He knew that he was offering you a portal into this darkness unconsciously because he wanted to confess to it. The truth is when people have as painful and frightening a childhood as it sounds like your husband did, the act of being shamed and confronted actually brings them back to re-experiencing that. There's a part of him, and this is the part that I think is quite dangerous for both of you, that actually wants to experience this shame and gets a certain gratification because it puts him back in a familiar place, the place that he was for much of his childhood where he felt either alone or at risk of being suddenly abandoned. Right. And, you know, I want us to talk more about the situation that uh, Two Truths and Many Lies is in. Mm -hmm. But I want to, at this point, bring in Julie Metz, author of Perfection, a memoir of betrayal and renewal. I think that she can share a story that might be helpful and enlightening uh, with Two Truths and Many Lies. Let's give her a call. Hello. Hi, Julie Metz. Yes. Hi. Hi, it's Steve Allman. I'm here with Cheryl Strayed. Hi, Julie. How are you? Great. Thanks so much. I'm really thrilled to be part of your radio show. Oh, thank you. Well, we're thrilled that you're on the show. I read your book, Perfection, several years ago, and I just was so riveted by it. And I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to us about this letter we've been discussing. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time with the letter. It was very moving. And I certainly felt for this writer because um, because I've been there. So I hope I can be helpful. Wow. So tell us uh, your own story. How have you been there? Well, in 2003, I was uh, 43 years old and the mother of a young child. My husband was 44 and um, he died suddenly in the middle of the afternoon mm. of what we now think was a pulmonary embolism. But the a fact was that it, it happened so suddenly and it was so shocking. And I started to kind of put things back together. And then about six months after he died, I found out many secrets that he had been keeping. The people who had been sort of my small entourage, they had had access to his computer and emails came in and they kind of kept it for me, I think, because they thought I was dealing with enough which I was <laughs> at the time, yeah. but I did find out and then came a whole reckoning, sort of looking back at my marriage, wondering, as this writer has spoken about, whether it was all a fraud, mm. whether any part of it was real, and then, of course, you know, what to do with the rest of your life. So your friends, people who were essentially helping you in your grief and right after your husband died, what did they find? What happened was that they needed access to his computer in order to invite people to the memorial service. And they found all the evidence there. The worst of it was that he had been involved with a woman in my town who was the mother of my daughter's best friend. This woman was in our house every day, or I was in her house every day. And she'd been having an affair with my husband for at least two, possibly three years. Hmm. Then in the aftermath of that, I also found out that there were a number of other women when he traveled for work. Mm -hmm. But all of it was intensely painful when I found out and, you know, really upended my life completely in, in every possible way. Obviously, there's the grieving process. You're grieving your husband's death. 
What about this other kind of grieving? Grieving the idea that your husband had been faithful to you? And what did you go through in coming to terms with his affairs? Well, oddly enough, I wasn't as surprised as you might think. And I think it's because I had been moving through this first six months of widowhood with a strange sense that grew more and more each day of sort of being unburdened. But of course, I didn't know at the time what I was being unburdened from. I then did something that um, not all people do, but I felt I had to do it. I actually contacted all the women with very surprising results (laughs) in that um, the woman in my town, obviously, you know, I hauled her out of her house and confronted her in her front yard. The other women I contacted by email and phone. And the conversations I had with them really, I think, helped me understand who my husband had been and how this had happened. And some of it, I think, is very pertinent to the letter from Two Truths and Many Lies. There's a kind of person who have a disturbing ability to compartmentalize their lives. I think, for example, that my husband, I believe he loved me. I think he loved what our life was about. He loved his daughter, for sure. And um, he didn't want to lose that. So he put all the other things that he was doing, he kind of found boxes for those things. So I was in one box, you know, our family the barbecues, the dinner parties, the friends that we had in our town. That was one box. And then there were all these other boxes. And I think this woman's husband is another such person. Right. She actually writes that he would pretend to be a different person while he was doing those things. I have that feeling about my husband as well, that he may have almost been imagining himself like playing a different part that he really transformed himself. When I came across his correspondence with these other women, I recognized him, but then there were letters that he would write to these women that um, I thought, who is this person? This is somebody else. But I think part of it was just a kind of um, self-destructive impulse that he had that is the tragic part of the story. Mm -hmm. In your case, Julie, uh, in a sense, it's... uh, you know, you're discovering who your husband was ex post facto. As you read this letter, you know, the question that is right in front of this woman at all times is really, what do I do? And specifically, is it possible to move forward in trying to continue this marriage? Or are there such substantial trust issues that I need to get out of this marriage before I get any deeper in? Did you have thoughts about that? It's it's different from your circumstance, but as you say, at the center of it is a charismatic, charming, emotionally present man who's also disassociated and has this secret life. Yeah, I did notice in her letter that she's already thinking about ending the marriage. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, you know, from where I'm sitting, he seems to be sort of crisis managing it. I would say that there's unfortunately very good reason to believe that there's more that she doesn't know. Right. I think so, too. And that you could spend a lot of time trying to excavate everything. But, you know, the question is, would it be better to move on and start her life over with somebody else? 
What do you think? What if, I mean, I know your husband died and you found out after he died, but let's say either you had found out while he was alive or your husband confessed them to you. What do you think you would have done? Have you thought about that? What you would have done if you'd found out in your marriage? Yeah, I certainly have had lots of time to think about that. And it's always been a very present thought. Knowing who I was then, and this brings up the big, huge difference between where I was and in my situation and where this woman is, which I feel is is very key. I had a small child. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time that he died, she was um, six and a half years old. Mm. And I think I probably would have tried to keep it together for a while because I would have been thinking to myself that it would be in the best interest of my child. I don't think we would have made it. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing that, that is really important for two truths to think about, you know, the, the question is partly what did these relationships mean to you? What was the meaning of these betrayals and these deceits? And the problem seems to be that the husband wants to minimize their meaning. Yeah. I mean, he's been extraordinarily careless. I mean, he's risked at the least her physical health. I mean, you know, having sex with prostitutes, you know, there's Mm -hmm. diseases that could be spread and he didn't disclose that to her. He's put her in, you know, in a state of mental confusion. And he's done all these things, uh, as you point out, with a kind of um, detached way without really fully, you know, sort of acknowledging all the, the many levels on which he's deceived her. And to me, that that suggests just a person who who needs to do a lot of work personally before they can really be in a marriage. Life is complicated and no relationships are perfect. I mean, everything is work. And, you know, the relationship I've, I'm in now, we've had our rough times, but the only way we've gotten through it is just with open, honest reckoning and a willingness to do the work. You know, if you if you aren't going to put it all out there, you can't make it work. You can't. And I think one thing that might be happening, Two Truths and Many Lies points out, like, how could he be doing this stuff as we're planning our wedding and getting engaged? All this? And, and my answer to that is one piece of this might be that, that yeah. actually that kind of um, deepening of commitment and intimacy yeah. is actually what escalated his secret life. Yes. Yeah. That might be one of the engines behind his sexual compulsion. Right. You know, this guy really engineered a great disaster for himself as he is escalating his intimacy and commitment, the thing that ostensibly should cause him the most security. He's actually at the same time engineering a scenario where he's going to betray this person in such a way that it will be impossible for her to stay with him. So he's going to re-experience the abandonment of whatever it is, his father's death, his mother's neglect. She frames this in her heroic narrative as these are the things they're going to defy, these different backgrounds. And it's very painful when you feel like you're constructing something heroic and against the odds to have to sort of admit, no, actually, certain differences, not just in temperament, but in people's self-destructiveness, sometimes will out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the most difficult thing to admit might be, I can't save this marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to say, too, this husband is worthy of our sympathy. I think that he's engaged in a great and painful struggle. Right. And I think he's ashamed of his behavior. So this isn't about a judgment. This is about, you know, mm-hmm. two people who are in this marriage and struggling with 
an issue that is a disaster that the husband brought on. And I want to say the true truth is that, you know, you're not responsible for his life, but you are responsible for your own. You know, maybe you will look into your husband's eyes and see that he's very sincere and he's going to really tackle this and you're willing to wait. And maybe you want to walk away tomorrow. And or, I think anything you do is the right, right thing some, to do. Some, you know, position that's in the middle that essentially says, we need to separate yeah. until you have figured this out and you can come to me with something other than I'll fix it, I'll mend it. It was only this. It didn't mean anything. Right. Um, sometimes it's okay and appropriate and the best thing to do to not foreclose the possibility of some kind of healing, but also recognize that you can't be with this person right now until he figures out some basic stuff. Yeah, that sounds, you know, very sensible. I mean, she owes it to herself to really think about what makes sense for her. And unlike the place where I was at 43 with the six and a half year old child, mm. she can afford and deserves to think just about herself. Like what would really make sense for her life? She can start over at 30. It sounds to me from the letter that she has a very clear idea of what she wanted from a relationship and this kind of self-destructive behavior of his that almost seems to be a kind of, um, unconscious wish to destroy, as you pointed out, Steve, the very things that would have offered him um, such a different life. That's just a part of human nature that exists that is, um, you know, the root of every tragedy. Right. right. They walk back into the ruins of their yeah. childhood. That It happens over and over again. I, you know, the other thing that, that is lurking underneath is the question of, will I be able to trust again? And, you know, the tough part of, so they take a break and maybe, you know, they're able to work things out. But if they're not, there's this other anxiety that, Julie, I think you could speak to a little bit, which is how do you then find the next relationship and feel trusting? Because this is a woman who told us coming into this relationship, she struggled with trust issues in small ways. And one of the lurking anxieties is now I'm never going to be able to trust. Have you thought about that? What have you done in the wake of all that you discovered about your late husband. I think that's the work that she can do. Right. That's her work. And I would say that that is the work that I did with a professional therapist. Uh, it might be possible to do that with talking to friends, but I really feel like that's a kind of deep, intense work Yeah. because I had that issue as well. I mean, I felt so violated after everything I found out. I thought, how am I ever going to allow anybody into my life again? When I did meet the man that I'm involved with now, we've been together for about 12 years. One of the things he did say was, um, you're going to have to find a way to forgive your husband hmm. so that we can have a meaningful intimacy. Because if you can't find a way to forgive him, you'll never be able to open your heart to something new. And I think that is a true thing. But one of the things I also feel is it is possible to forgive somebody and still say to yourself, that person is not healthy for me. Right. You know, you can have compassion for them. I have a lot of compassion for my departed husband at this point in my life. I'm way beyond the anger and the rage. You know, I think now how sad and tragic it is he didn't get to see his daughter grow up. She's a lovely young woman. You know, he had every reason to have a good life. He was a creative person, intelligent, very charismatic, a good friend. We had moments of authentic intimacy that I 
keep with me. And I think that's something else that she needs to think about, too, is you don't want to throw it all away. Right. There were genuine, real moments, and those are hers to keep. But I think that work of being able to trust somebody, I think it can be done. It will take work on her part. But I believe that she can, if she chooses, make a new life with a different person. Mm. Well, Julie, thank you. You have been so interesting and insightful. And to our listeners, I want to say, go and get Julie's book, Perfection, and you can hear more of this story that she's shared with us uh, today. And I, I just thank you for being on the show. You were you were really interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, two truths and many lies. We got so many emails. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it was a lot from women who are in, who have been in this situation yeah. and have a, li- you know, a little more time to see you know, how that panned out. And th- the first letter I want to share with you is from somebody who signs herself as joyful. Mm. Dear Sugars, I had to stop my afternoon housework, say a prayer, grab the laptop, and write you about the secret lives of lovers, which to me right away tells you this is a woman who has a burning desire to share. And she right. did. She sent us this long email with, with really her backstory, which is really she was a young wife of a good man, a person she calls a good man nearly 20 years ago when she discovered his mm. secret life. And it was yep. devastating to her. And she tried. She tried with him to fix the broken parts. They did marriage counseling. They He entered recovery. She also worked on herself, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, is a really important thing to do when you're ha- having to heal a wound like this. Her husband ultimately failed in his recovery, and she made the choice to leave after some agonizing years. She just decided it wasn't going to be his his problems, what she calls his addiction. She wasn't going to carry into her life anymore. Mm. And so she gave two truths and, and many lies some advice. Here yep. it is. First of all, and I think we noted this, Steve, you're in the early stages of this. It's a trauma that you're in right now and you don't have to make a decision in this yep. in this moment. I think that's a really powerful thing for people to remember who are in all kinds of situations whether yes. it be you know the the discovery of an affair or a whole secret life or you know any any kind of you know difficult revelation you don't have to decide immediately what to do. She also says your husband's crisis management of the situation his giving you small bits of information is typical. And until you hear him say that he's powerless over his behavior and needs help, he's not really ready right. to make those changes, which I think is really wise. She also notes that, you know, people, addicts lie. People who want to protect themselves, that, that secret life, they lie. They, they're in a panic. There's, as you've pointed out, and we talked about this on the episode, there's a lot of shame mm. going on here. And when shame is involved, most of us act to protect ourselves. And our instinct is to try to deny it as, to the extent that we can. 
She also says, and I think this is really key, your friends and family love you, but if they haven't lived through something like this, they're not going to entirely understand. And so their opinions will often only add to your confusion. Right. So, you know, you're not, there's no right or wrong to truths and many lies, you know, that you get to do whatever you're doing when you're faced with this crisis. And and nobody gets to sit in judgment of a situation that's so wrenching. We got another letter that was, you know, really along the same line. So a woman wrote that she had a panic attack listening to this letter. It sounded exactly like what she had gone through. Um, And she writes, when I first found out about my husband's many betrayals, reckless behaviors and lies, he broke down and told me that his father had molested him when he was a child. He was full of shame, anger, depression, dark thoughts, and her own in sickness and in health instincts kicked in. All was forgiven, you know, and she vowed that they could concentrate together on getting him the help that he needed. And then, as it should happen, she writes, very long story short, he pretended to try for a while with me doing most of the heavy lifting Nine months later, I discovered he was still at it, gaslighting me at first, playing the victim, and then threatening self-harm if I left. And then it clicked. Uh, And she says, she writes, two years later, we're now divorced. I'm moving on. While he has still chosen to carry on as before with no attempts to get some real help, I still hurt for him and his terrible struggles. I mourn the loss of what might have been, but I know that by leaving, I saved myself, my health, and well-being. And she writes walk away to truths and signs herself the former Mrs. Hyde. Yeah. And, and she says something, too, that I think is really important. And that is, listen, if he's serious at his attempt in healing himself, right. you can walk away and, and let him heal. And then if, if you guys are meant to be, you know, he can come back to you and say, like, I did that work and I'm here and I still love you. And then you get to say, whether you want to enter that relationship again. I think that's a really key point. She also uses that phrase like that, that it was that she had done a bunch of the heavy lifting right. when it came to the healing. I, I, I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation. A lover, you know, reveals some betrayal and then it's like, okay, we're going to work on this. But, but, you know, if the person who actually perpetrated that, who sort of stepped out of the relationship or told a lie or, mm-hmm. you know, if that person is not actually doing most of the work of that healing, I think that's a really a, a great sign that things are not going well. That's right. On the other hand, sometimes things do go well. And yes, we, even in Sugarland. Even in Sugarland. We have a we have a letter uh, from a, a woman named Mega who says she listened to the podcast and uh, it made her reflect upon her own decade-long relationship and that she and her husband, you know, early on in their relationship faced something very much like, like Two Truths and Many Lies did. And she said it has not been an easy road and the issues resurface, though differently and less painfully over time. And she said, you know, that, that those demons that they faced together uh, also came with a lot of pleasures that they faced together and that there were so many joys in a loving partnership and many opportunities to live a full life together individually and as a family. And she took heart from, we did this episode on infidelity yep. with Esther Perel, who said, you know, that, that you might consider divorcing your belief system rather than your lover when it comes to uh, what you expect in terms of it seems here probably fidelity. But, you know, she says there's no guarantees in life, just the decisions we make to move forward. And I think that's really wise advice. It's essentially what we said to Two Truths and Many Lies. Mm-hmm. No matter where she has moved, 
she's moved forward in one direction or the other and 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 that those decisions will you know carry her down a path that will be revealing no matter no matter where it goes and now what's exciting is we get it revealed to us yeah live on your sugar radio and new to us just as it will be new to our listeners so let's give her a call Hello. Hi, is this Two Truths? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Cheryl Strayed. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm on the line with Steve Almond as well. Hi, how are you? Hi, Steve. I'm good. So uh, we have just uh, been discussing your letter and also uh, reading out loud some of the, we got many emails in response to your situation. You're not alone. But a lot of our listeners were really curious, and we were too, and concerned about, you know, what's happened next and how you're doing and, uh, you know, what what you decided to do at this point in your life. Sure. Well, first, I'd like to thank you both for the podcast. Um, It sounds like it was definitely helpful for a lot of people, and it was very helpful for me. It was. Um, I've gone back. (laughs) I've gone back to listen to it many times, and especially um, the comments that you both had about, the ability to both love someone and still be doing these things and also the possible reasons for this behavior have been really helpful for me. So I just want to express my appreciation for the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to hear it was helpful. Yeah. Yes, it definitely was. Um, As far as where I am right now, um, I can't really say that the story is wrapped neatly in a bow or anything like that. I mean, it's still very much in process. So in November, when I first found out, I probably spent about a week in bed. Um, I didn't really do anything except, you know, talk to my friends, try to figure out when I was going to go back to work, things like that. And then by the end of November, around Thanksgiving time, I had spent some time with my husband and I had sort of reached a place where I wanted to see if it would be possible to go to a therapist with him and figure out if we could maybe work on it. And so when I was, I, we decided to spend the holidays separately. So I drove to my family's house for the holidays. And then once I got there, it was just so terrible to be around them. You know, like they, I had told them what happened and I think they just felt so terrible and protective of me. And then I felt this very strange obligation to separate from my husband immediately. I think I felt some sort of obligation to my family, some sort of obligation to myself that I had to stand up for myself and the people that I loved and no one should treat me like this. So I ended up calling my husband while I was still at my family's house and asking him to move out of our apartment and Mm -hmm. into his family's house. So he did that all while I was away and he literally erased every sign of him from the apartment. Um, And he pictured the two of us, all of his books, so it was quite shocking to come back to the apartment. Wow, I bet. And I felt that that sort of happened too early. That was very devastating for me. Um, so then I went to the therapist with him throughout December, but nothing was really that helpful. Um, but still during that, that phase, I was reaching out to family and friends. I was doing a lot of information gathering, trying to figure out, you know, what different people thought of the situation. I had friends who, you know, thought I needed to get out of the situation immediately and then I had other friends who were more open-minded and thought there might be a way to work through it and you know maybe there would be a way to to trust my husband again Mm. so after probably about a month of that I actually pretty much stopped talking to a lot of my family and friends because I think at that time I realized that this was a decision that I had to make for myself Mm -hmm. that no one else you know had to live with him or try to build a life with him after this had happened yeah so 
I was seeing my husband off and on during that time. But then eventually, I would say the turning point happened in February. I went on a vacation um, with my two best friends. And my husband knew that I was going on this vacation, but he did not know, you know, what time my flights were or anything like that. He had asked to drive me to the airport and pick me up from the airport. And I just told him I didn't want to do that. But then when I landed, he ended up being at the airport. I don't know how he knew when my flight was. I don't, I don't know any of that, but he ended up being there and I just didn't want him there. Um, Mm. I think it was, you know, sort of a physical reaction to it. I can't really explain it, but it was at that time pretty much that I knew that it just wasn't gonna um, work out between the two of us. The The body spoke. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. Exactly. Well, and I think it sounds like you made the right choice. We always talk about that you got to trust your gut, and there it was. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, what's interesting is you began our conversation by saying, you know, thank you for pointing out that people can be you know, can can do bad things and still love you, or that if you if you you know betray someone or lie, that doesn't mean you're you're a bad person or you're evil. And so even in mm-hmm. breaking up, I'm imagining you've needed to you know in order to do that with some love and some harmony, you've had to to come together in some ways with him while you're coming apart. Yep, that's true. And we've actually had some really nice email exchanges um, where I feel like I've gotten to say a lot of what I needed to say, and he said, you know. I mean, it's been, I think, very difficult for him. I think he is still at this point, so we're not officially divorced yet, um, though we're close to starting that process. But we have been able to say, I think, some of those things that you want to say to each other to get closure, which is great. But I know, um, Cheryl, in the podcast, you had said, I think you're going to hear you know, what you need to hear from your husband in the upcoming months to know whether you want to stay with him or whether you don't. And I can say that the things he said to me about the situation were very alarming and still made me know that he, you know, hadn't come to terms with it himself or maybe still was lying to himself about it. He said things like, I know that I've already dealt with my past, you know, that's behind me. I don't even have to think about that or that he doesn't want to keep going to his own therapist. Now we're both seeing therapists independently. And I, last I heard, he didn't want to keep seeing his so it's just, it's very difficult to work with someone who maybe really isn't able to confront these demons themselves. That's so. right. Wow. I just want to say what you did. Yeah. I mean, what a powerful, brave, hard thing to do. And and so many people struggle with doing that. And they spend years, yeah. you know, sort of spinning their wheels in relationships that aren't good for them. And I just, I think, I just want to congratulate you on really finding your strength at this moment that I know was incredibly hard in your life. Yeah. Thank you. I definitely can say that it isn't easy. You know, I have times when I feel actually a sense of freedom and very hopeful about the future. And there's things that I'm excited about, um, like the prospect of falling in love again, something that, you know, when I married, was getting married, I was obviously giving up. And also just thinking about myself and my own career and my own future. All those things are exciting. But then I also have days where I'm still very much mourning the loss of this person. And even times, to be completely honest, where I wonder, like, is this really the right choice? But I think given everything that I've heard in the last six months and, you know, the way I've been feeling internally, I know that it is. For sure. Yeah. Well, like Cheryl, I'm deeply impressed with 
you know, how bravely, how clear-eyed you are about where you are in this moment. Mm -hmm. And there is love ahead and joy ahead and so much excitement. And, you know, I think that, that when we pass through these transition times, the one that you're in the midst of, you know, so much in the end is, is you do have to let go of things. But on the other side of that is a great sense of liberation. The, the world is mm -hmm. yours. And, and I hope you go and find a more honest love than the one mm -hmm. that you had with your husband. Yeah, you deserve that. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All okay. right. Good luck. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, you know, I have to say, Steve, obviously, I never I try to, you know, avoid, you know, hoping for one thing or the other with any of these, because, of course, we don't know, you know, we, no. we get these letters and we, we try to give advice, but we very seldom say, oh, you know, do this or that. Right. And I have to say, I, I strangely and interestingly, I, I feel a sense of relief. Yeah. I feel like this this woman, and, and this isn't to say that her husband is an evil person, but that he really has some big, big, big stuff to deal with. And it sounds to me like he, he wasn't ready to deal with it. Right. And so she's escaping. She's walking away. She doesn't have to be one of those women who write to us in 10 years and say, you know, I regret that I didn't just pick up and leave when I should have. Right. And as you pointed out, She's making a necessary decision for right now. And if he goes off and realizes the error of his ways and he's not dealing with, he's not going to escape his past. It's not over. The past is present, right? It's prologue even, as Faulkner reminds us. Well, okay, you know, maybe then down the line they'll have a new kind of relationship. But for the moment, he's proved himself to be a dangerous, not trustworthy person for her. Um, and I, I agree. I shared that sense of I'm unsettled by this unless she hears something very particular from him that has to do with really recognizing that he's got some serious work he has to do. So now she gets to do work with somebody, hopefully, who's more reliable, who's more trustworthy and more deserving of her love. Mm -hmm. So this has been another episode of Dear Sugar Radio. We are produced by WBR. We're produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. We're recording in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman of Talkback Sound and Visual. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Please listen and subscribe on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave an iTunes review. We really appreciate that. And you can write to us at DearSugarRadio at gmail.com. That's right. And people can also follow us on Twitter at DearSugarRadio. We'll be back next week with another one of these intriguing update episodes. That's right. A hot update for the hot days of August.